Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Bluff City Church, Memphis, Tennessee. So I, I, I need to start off with a little bit of a disclaimer that was not planned because of the events on Friday uh, with the SCOTUS events. And here's, here's the thing. What's really interesting is... Um, I traditionally write my sermons about two weeks early, and that's probably about average, is the sermons are written about two weeks early. Sometimes I can get about three weeks early. But the difficulty of that, as I have noticed, the, the positive of that is you get a sermon that is ideally pretty well thought through, right? Uh, with specific word choices, and I get to frame things the, very intentionally. The negative side of that is if something happens within that two-week period in the mass social consciousness that like kind of asks for being addressed, then it it's like, well, uh, can I can I really do that? What's the proper mechanism to do that? So what's really what has been really interesting to me about this through the years is that it is fascinating to me, and I don't know, maybe it's just because the Holy Spirit works in me. Um, but how often the sermon that I already have written in some ways addresses the current concerns or events. And so that's no different today. Uh, my sermon is 99.9% the exact same as it was before Friday. And yet I think we're going to see the implications of uh, Friday in what I'm going to talk about, okay? So here's the reality. We know that the language of rights dominates American political discourse. Already, we're, we're at Friday, right? Your mind is there, okay? This was already written. Um, the language of rights dominates American political discourse. Embodied, embedded in our founding documents is the idea that we have a right to free speech, that we have a right to bear arms, that we have a right to congregate, that we have any number of other rights. But here's the question that I want us to ask, and I wanted us to ask it before Friday. What is a Christian supposed to do when we realize that the exercise of our rights, the imposition of our rights, has life and death implications for the vulnerable people around us. Southern enslavers included slaves as a part of their property rights. They claimed that owning people was their right to property. The NRA says that Americans have a right to own and carry assault rifles, even if some bad guys use these weapons to shoot up schools and churches. Christian radio has long relied on the right of free speech to protect itself from the legal charges of hate speech, in litigation brought by women and gay folks. What is a Christian supposed to do when we realize that the exercise of our rights has life and death implications for vulnerable people 
like, say, pregnant women. To answer this, I want to appeal to our text today. But in order to sort of get a grasp on what's happening in this text, I want to remind you of something that I have been saying week after week after week, almost since the beginning of walking through 1 Corinthians. Paul is not talking in this text to every member of the Corinthian church. Remember what I have said over and over is that Paul is specifically, Paul is specifically continuing to address people who have used their privilege, their wealth, their social power, and their rights to intentionally or even accidentally hurt the vulnerable people around them. So he is not addressing every individual in the church. He is addressing a subset in the church that is particularly privileged and particularly socially powerful. So at every stage, whether we have talked about Paul addressing the rich suing the poor in unjust courts in Corinth, whether we have been talking about divorce and male privilege in Corinth, whether we have been talking about exploitive sex in Corinth, whether we have been talking about food sacrificed to idols in Corinth, at every stage in this conversation when Paul addresses the powerful and their actions toward the vulnerable, Paul has sided with the vulnerable. And in some ways, this discussion comes to a head in our text today when Paul begins to talk about his own rights. Because Paul will talk about his own rights to set an example for how we should think about our rights and our exercise of our rights. So what exactly is the issue in 1 Corinthians 9 that sort of can become a, a pretty direct metaphor or even analogy for us discussing rights? Well, here it is. This is going to be very foreign to us, so stay with me. Wealthy Christians in Corinth are upset because, with Paul because they want to pay him wages. For his gospel labor. But Paul has rejected their offer and has chosen instead to make a living through manual labor. Okay? So already, like you can see, like this is a pretty foreign thing to us, and it raises really two obvious questions. One, why would Paul reject funding from them? And two, why would they be so upset with this? And then three, we will get to what does this have to do with rights? Okay, so let's address the first question. Why would he reject their money? Why would he reject their financial support? Remember, the church in Paul's day is the first generation of churches. There's like a handful. The church was not like a mega church in Corinth. There's there's like 25 Christians gathered in a house. And that's all the Christians like for hundreds and hundreds of miles. This is the first generation of Christians and they are trying to figure out how do we support our pastor. They do not have a denominational precedent telling them what they owe their pastor. They don't have thousands of years of saying this is the best practice. 
They've never done this. They're making it up as they go. And so what they do is they rely on the social customs around them to inform how this should be done. And who they rely on is how Greco-Roman philosophers were paid. Greco-Roman philosophers were often, consider, uh, were often just like walked around town to town starting arguments with people. And so how were these people paid? This is how they, like this is the model they used for talking about how to pay Paul, who's walking around town to town starting arguments with people. So there are four models that they could go with from the Greco-Roman philosophers. The first is that you could charge fees for your teaching if you were a philosopher. A group called the Sophists are one example of this. And the strength of charging fees was obvious that it made you money. You could survive. You got to live by the fruit of your labor. You got to spend your time teaching. And also, you got the status and the prestige of being a professional orator or philosopher. The weakness of charging fees, as the sophists learn, was that people pr could pretty easily accuse you of greed and saying what people wanted to hear in order to make more money. And you know what? That criticism has a lot of validity, doesn't I think we have learned this even in the church world. In a world where megachurch opulence is front and center for everyone to see, where an Instagram page exists called Preacher Sneakers to tell you how much Stephen Furtick's Jordans were, $695. And that's not even the most egregious example from that page. Or, in a world where there's an entire television show called The Righteous Gemstones. Any Righteous Gemstones fans out there? Yes. Jen's sitting over there, she's like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. Where there is basically a mafia-like culture in a mega church setting. John Goodman is essentially Tony Soprano. Where the message becomes biased because you're paid and because you want to make more money. So, a second option then was some philosophers were supported by a wealthy patron, an individual or an individual family, and be, they, the philosopher would become something like a resident intellectual. Now again, positively, this meant that you got paid and you received prestige based on the status of whoever your patron was. But negatively, again, this entailed the loss of independence for the philosopher. There were always purse strings attached to getting paid. Consider, for example, in our own day once again, that one of my favorite politicians has received, she's not, by the way, just in case no one was picking up my sarcasm, has received over $1 million in campaign contributions for the, from the NRA, which means every time there's another school shooting for the first 24 hours, she's absolutely predictable. She comes out and she gives thoughts and prayers for the school children and the teachers and everyone who is murdered, while everyone knows that she is not going to do anything to change policy. Because 
She has a wealthy patron who is paying her bills, so she has a script she has to go by. You see why this is a problem? So, there was a group of people called the cynics who recognized that getting paid by a patron or anyone else created biases in your messaging. So what the cynics decided to do was opt to beg for money. They thought, we'll get money out of this, just out of the equation. We can teach whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. We can say whatever I want. It doesn't matter if anyone likes us or not. We're not going to have $700 pairs of Jordans sitting on the street corner, basically like sharing our food with dogs. So the cynic said, we'll just beg for money. The problem was, economically, this is incredibly inconsistent, right? And it was also considered very demeaning for the teacher. It was associated with low-class behavior and left the teacher being perceived as a low-class, uneducated person. It also left you with very little energy to actually teach. Positively, though, you couldn't be accused of bias. There is, however, one fourth option. The fourth option was to work a trade to support your teaching career. On the plus side, again, this left you independent and free to say whatever you wanted. On the negative side, however, it left you tired, exhausted, and unable to do the work to promote your teaching. It also entailed a rejection of upper-class prestige and status that would help spread your message. This fourth option is the option that Paul went for. He chose to work with his hands. Now, this raises the second question then. We can understand why now Paul might have rejected their money. The question is, right, he doesn't want purse strings attached. But this raises the second question. Why are they so upset about it? Why do they care what Paul does? And the answer to that has everything to do with respectability. Wealthy Christians in Corinth wanted their church to seem legitimate and respectable. They didn't want their church meeting in a basement. We want a respectable church with a respectable building, with a respectable pastor who doesn't wear chupacabra t-shirts. They wanted their church and their pastor to be respectable, which means that they needed to appear legitimate and respectable, which means funding him and funding him well. When a philosopher is doing manual labor to support himself, it looks bad on the people who follow the philosopher. And so the wealthy, Corin the wealthy Corinthian uh, Christians are particularly concerned that the outside perspective, particularly the outside perspective of other wealthy people in Corinth, that they will consider their church and their pastor and their religion illegitimate. And they have a, I mean, let's be honest, they have a little bit of a point. When you start off telling your wealthy neighbors that you worship a guy who lived a couple Couple hundred, uh, a couple hundred miles away who was crucified by the Romans for being a terrorist. Like, you already have like a leg down and sort of saying, hey, you should come be a part of my religion. And then on top of that, you got a pastor who's just like walking around, working with leather and making tents and not like being supported for his teachings. All of this communicates illegitimacy and it takes away prestige and status. Now, what then does all of this have to do with rights? Well, whereas most pastors might have to argue for their right to be paid, 
Paul is arguing for his right to refuse to be paid. He is concerned about the purse strings attached to the wealthy donors and how that might inhibit his ability to side with the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed in his community. He is very sensitive to how different things may contribute to his privilege and may therefore inhibit his ability to identify with those who lack privilege. And you know what? He has a point. I have mentioned uh, once or twice that I try not to know what you give to the church. Whenever possible, I try not to look at who gives what and who gives more and who doesn't. And the reason I do that is because I know that if I know that Jay gives $3 million and Blair gives $3, when it comes to some sort of conflict where they disagree, I know that I am human and I am going to be thinking, man, this is going to have massive financial ramifications if I side with Blair or side with Jay. Or, or don't, I'm sorry, if I side with Blair and I, and I don't side with Jay. What if Jay gets mad? What if Jay leaves the church? Like, and so it has been important to me to not know what people give unless uh, I can otherwise help it. So here's what Paul does. He asks a number of rhetorical questions that get at his rights. He says, am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen the Lord Jesus Christ with my own eyes? Literally, all I did here was list all of Paul's rhetorical questions. There's like 50 of them. And all of them are oriented around establishing his rights. Don't I deserve to be get paid? Don't I? A soldier doesn't go to war on his own money. An oxen is allowed to eat from the grass that, that the oxen treads. Which is, it's a really strange series of rhetorical questions because it seems like Paul is actually establishing his right to get paid. And in fact, that is what he is doing. But I've already said he's trying not to get paid. So why would he spend all of this energy to establish his right to get paid? He is saying, I have a right to be paid. But he goes through all of these rhetorical questions in order to then say that he lays down his rights to get paid for the sake of something bigger than himself. For the sake of the gospel and particularly for the sake of the purity of the gospel message with the vulnerable. He says... But we have never used this right. This is the turning point in the argument. It seems like he is arguing for getting paid, maybe even getting paid more. And then he turns it around on them in an unexpected way and he says, but I do not exercise my rights. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. I have never used any of these rights, and I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I would rather die. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. Keep that in mind, without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. Without charging anyone is key. Paul understands 
that if he is a pat- if he is patronized by a wealthy Christian, it will ruin his objectivity. It will ruin his opportunity to provide the gospel for free to the poor. The poor cannot have their own traveling philosopher. Right? They can't patron him. And so if he makes his living based on being patroned by the wealthy, he cannot spend his time with the vulnerable. And so Paul lays down his rights in order to benefit the vulnerable in his churches. He would rather identify with the vulnerable than the pow- rather than the powerful, the have-nots, than the haves. Those who have no rights than those who might use their rights to be coercive toward others. The upper echelon of Greco-Roman society looked down on manual labor. And so Paul places himself in solidarity with those who have to work for a living by refusing to receive money. This had the double effect of both helping him identify with the poor and also freeing him from the purse strings that come with being attached to a wealthy donor. The Corinthians wanted a pastor who was polished and professional, who fit their upper class lifestyle, and Paul chooses to make them look bad in front of their friends rather than betray the vulnerable and the poor. He is not a professional. He decidedly rejects it. You see this even in the famous passage that Madeline read where Paul says that he becomes all things to all people. If you heard this text cited, I become all things to all people. I I do whatever needs to be done to share the gospel. It's always interesting how that's self-serving when that text is quoted, when what Paul is really doing is laying down his rights in that text. Just notice what is left out in what he says, okay? Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share its blessing. I mean, doesn't it sound like I should wear $675 sneakers so that I can appeal to the wealthy? I become all things to all people. I want to have, I want to have common ground with everybody. That's not what he says. In the context, he's laying down his rights. Notice how he says this. Notice who is left out. He says, I have become a slave to all people so that I might reach slaves. He does not say, he does not say, I become a slave owner in order to reach slave owners. He says, I have become weak in order to save those who are weak. He does not say, I become powerful and coercive in order to save the powerful and the coercive. He says, I become poor in order to save the poor, but he doesn't even become rich in order to save the rich. Here's the larger point he's making. He gave up his rights to identify with those who had no rights or those who had lost their rights. 
And he did not assert his rights from a position of coercion and power in order to win some culture war. Now tell me this doesn't have massive implications for the way we think about our own rights and the exercise of our rights. Again, this was written before Friday, so you're just going to have to stay with me. What might this look like? One, sacred conversation, which is something we talk about a lot here. Sacred conversation means that I don't always have to exercise my right to free speech. Sacred conversation recognizes that there are statements that I could make, that I would be free to make, that are within my rights to make, that I also should not make. We recognize that our speech has an impact, particularly on the vulnerable. Christians do not use racial slurs, even though you might have a right to use them. We do not use homophobic slurs. We do not use transphobic slurs. We do not use gender stereotypes. You might have a right given to you in the Constitution to say whatever you want. But sacred conversation compels you to consider the vulnerable when you speak. Thank you. See, somebody was listening when I said you can be responsive earlier. In fact, a good lesson for how to use harsh speech or even humor is that you should always punch up rather than punch down in the way you use your speech. Let me give you an example about my own failures. Uh, I am obviously a tall person, six foot three. So about 10 years ago, this is before, about a year before any of you knew me, so I got to learn wisdom before you met me. Uh, I, was, I was still very new to preaching uh, regularly, and I was preaching, and I made a reference, a joke, about this guy that I knew in high school who was much shorter than me, and I referred to him as having short man syndrome. I made a joke about it. I thought it was funny. I thought it was benign. The guy wasn't in the room. Didn't matter, right? So I have this woman come up to me after the service. She's weeping. She says, I have been trying to get my son to come to church with me for 10 years. And he reluctantly agreed to come with me today. And the problem for him is that he's really short. And he cannot get women to go on dates with him because he's shorter than most of them. And so when you made that joke, it hurt him. And he's never coming back. Now listen, I'm going to be honest. I am a contrarian by nature. So I was just like, oh. first of all, I did the appropriate thing just to let you know. I was, oh, so sorry that happened. But inside, I was like, come on, man. Like, it's just a joke. This is not a big deal. Like, this is a guy who didn't want to go to church with his mom and he wanted to get her off his back. So he told her this excuse about how the pastor made a short man syndrome joke. And now he's, this is the stuff that's going through my mind, right? So after church, I'm talking to my best friend on the phone, and I'm telling him about this, and I'm just like, oh my gosh. And he goes, Tom, what if she's telling the truth? 
Tom, humor should always punch up, not punch down. And by the way, just like literally right now, I realize the metaphor of punching down is problematic in a conversation about short folks. The intention is, he's he's saying, like, don't punch down. Use humor or use your rights or your privilege to punch up, to challenge those who are coercive and powerful. This, this, this reshapes the way we think about even Friday's decision. We want to continue to control other people's bodies, particularly people's bodies who have not had historical rights. And instead, what we should be doing is calling the powerful to account for not doing more to ensure rights. And to make, if you want to make abortion unthinkable, don't make it illegal, make it unthinkable. It is not that hard for us to look back over the course of 50 years and see that the very people who now celebrate the decision on Friday have been working against women's and children's rights for 50 years. You can't cut every social safety net out from poor women and then celebrate when they lose the control they feel like they have over their bodies. You don't have to be pro-abortion to see this is problematic. The use of our rights should punch up instead of punch down. I'm not saying don't consider a child in this. I'm saying to recognize how our rights have been used to hurt the most vulnerable. All the while, white dudes in particular sit in positions of power making decisions about everyone else. Decisions they don't have to live with. Sacred conversation means that I may have the right to say something, but that doesn't mean I should say it. It means punching up and not punching down. 